Hello and welcome to a special Back to the Movies edition of the Film Nerds podcast. I am your host, Matt Scalisi. And uh, just just so that you guys can, uh, you know, we'll, we'll spell this out for you because this is a new thing we're doing. Um, we've made it now to the to the top ten movies of 1983 on this Back to the Movies feature I've been doing, and uh, I thought I'd I thought I'd kind of give a little bit extra effort on the last ten here on the home stretch. So I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be having a, a special guest to discuss each of these last ten movies with me here on the podcast. And first up here, uh, I've got regular film nerds contributor Graham Flanagan is going to be joining me, and uh, we're going to be talking about Risky Business, number 10, from 1983. Graham, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this podcast with me. My pleasure. Um, well, so, you know, this is, this, is a, um, this is kind of a curious uh, movie to, to start off these podcasts with. And, and you know, I, I'm sure we'll get into this as we go, just in general, talking about some of the things that I've kind of run across watching all these movies from 1983. But... Just to start us off, Risky Business was a uh, you know it was a it was a massive hit, obviously, to have made the top ten. When you go back and look at all the movies it beat, sixty three and a half million back in uh, back in nineteen eighty three was its total gross, and and uh, it was a it was kind of a late summer release, early August. So, um, I mean, I you know, it's definitely it's definitely a movie. I think you could have you you can understand. Um, when you when you look at it today and see you know, Tom Cruise was in it, you know it's a it's a uh, kind of a high concept comedy is what it looks like from the outside. But really, you know when you start to break it down, this is this is kind of not an obvious <laughs> runaway hit. And I'm not sure a movie like this would maybe be as successful today. I mean, talk talk about Graham. What what do you what do you think was the thing that resonated about Risky Business when you watch it now? You know what? What's the what's the thing that makes you watch this and go, "This this is I get why this is a hit." Well, I think it, it kind of tapped into the, the what a lot of people might have considered the the overall kind of consciousness and the zeitgeist of the time. Uh, you know, we we were what just three years into the Reagan era, and uh, you know, early on in the movie, the, a group of the kids are sitting around talking about kind of their their future and where if where they're getting into school and about what's important to them. And and uh, Joel Tom Cruise's character says, you know, not me. Money's not everything. I want to. I want to, you know, do mankind a favor. And and the rest of his friends say, well, I just want to make money. And uh, you know, I think that that aspect of the movie that's what sticks out to me is just kind of something that everyone was kind of thinking and feeling, and that they that they were able to embrace at that time in American history. Yeah, and, and then there's you know then there's there's beautiful women. It's there's sex and a great soundtrack, and I mean that, that just it sounds to me like the ideal late summer movie. Yeah, and you know I I think that's that is definitely something that sticks out. What you mentioned uh, about kind of the you know I guess I guess the the goals that these characters have in the movie when you I, you know I'm trying to think of what would be even a comparable movie today. Um, but but you know when you when you see when you see characters that are high school you know high school teen sex comedies type of things today really what you hear these sort of coming of age characters talk about is you know I want to be 
I want to be an artist. I want to be, uh, I want to do something important with my life. That's kind of what you hear characters in movies today talk about doing something cool and doing something that, that they feel like matters. And really, you know, I, I don't guess the Tom Cruise's character, Joel ever, ever really settles on what it is he wants to do with his life in the movie, but it definitely, I mean, money, money clearly is important to him. And, and that, I mean, if he learns a lesson in the movie, I think it is that there are, uh, you know, there are a lot of different ways to be a successful businessman, you know, and that, and that I guess there's, you know, there's, uh, negatives to negatives to, to those different methods sometimes. I, I don't know. You know, it's it's uh, it's definitely not a traditional sex comedy. When I look at some of the, you know, I've seen quite a lot of those here in in this stretch of fifty movies, and uh, I think this one just doesn't seem to be as focused on. Uh, maybe maybe it's just not as focused on the sex aspect as some of the other ones are. You know, it, he's no no that, yeah go ahead yeah I mean I think he's I think a lot more of it is about he he's he's really trying to succeed he's trying to you know he's trying to sort of be successful at something and really he's he's almost kind of apprehensive about the sex part of of what's going on in the movie well i mean it is suggested you know we we we, we see there are a couple of sex scenes or whatever but it it seems like you know that this guy is just kind of good at whatever he does including sex i mean he he obviously uh performs in such a way that you know it keeps an experienced professional like Rebecca De Mornay around. Uh, and, and yeah, but no, the, the, so the sex is there and I agree with you, even though the movie is a sex comedy and sex plays a major part in the, the plot and the sequence of events that happens. I think that there are a lot of, uh, a lot bigger themes going on, especially the one that stuck out to me was the, the loss of innocence, which is, which is hit on, I think throughout the movie and, and it can be kind of, uh, Heavy-handed at times, especially the theme of looking at uh, basically contrasting what's going on at this point in Joel's life with with uh, pictures of him as a child. Yeah, you there's know, this- a lot of that there, and and they come at at very odd moments. You're right there. Uh, I mean, I know I know one specifically. There's a um, one I think is probably the early sex scene between him and uh, and Rebecca De Mornay. Yeah, the, the camera actually goes from them. And pans over pictures of his, you know, basically his baby pictures. Right. And then later on, uh, I believe it's in the scene where Joel's meeting with the Princeton recruiter, uh, Rebecca De Mornay is standing in that study. And when she gets out of the way, uh, she gets out of the way. And when she moves, there's another picture of Joel right behind her (laughs) as a child. So that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, Throughout the entire film, you, you kind of see, you know, this guy was raised in, a, in a, an idyllic uh, suburban environment, uh, you know, with parents that do want nothing for him but to succeed and to put his mind to his studies, etc. cetera. Uh, but, you know, it's all about temptation. He's surrounded by temptation. His friends, that everybody, what they really want to do with their free time is play cards, drink, smoke cigarettes, talk about the difference between boffing and, uh, <laughs> and one of my favorite scenes and driving the Porsche, you know, and it just shows uh, that, that despite, you know, the, the quality or the, the, the honorable intentions of, of your upbringing, 
that you're still going to have to deal with the same temptations that society's faced for forever. Yeah, and I think you know, really, the the fact that it has some of those ideas going on that that you know that Paul Brickman, the the writer director here, you know, sort of infused into this movie, it definitely. I mean, that is the big difference and why I don't think you could just call this a sex comedy, you know, especially when when you compare it to some of the other ones we've seen that or, or that I've seen in this in this series here. You know, when I when I'm thinking back on movies like there's there's a movie called Spring Break earlier in the series here and <laughs> like my tutor. I mean, they're 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 very juvenile, uh, you know, very straight up sex comedies. And I mean, they're movies, they're movies where the the premise and the. You know, all, all the scenes, you could kind of guess what kind of scenes are going to happen as the movie goes on. And right. this movie just does – it does have a lot more going for it. And, and it was it was pretty highly critically praised back in – Justly the so. Yeah, Justly I mean, so. I mean, this is I've, – I've seen this movie – God, this is probably the uh, fifth or sixth time I've watched it all the way through. And, I mean, it holds up. It gets uh, – you know, it's done it's the visually. It is just a really clean, well-done movie. And – uh the performances are all solid, and it, 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 I think it probably should have gotten some Oscar contention. Yeah, and, and you know, actually, Roger Ebert, I was reading his review. That's part of kind of what I've been doing when I go mm. through these movies. I go back and read uh, Ebert's review at the time and the New York Times review, and uh, Ebert actually gave this one four stars, and he's, he's comparing it to The Graduate. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he's talk, talking about, like you said, some of these themes, you know, male adolescent guilt and stuff like that. So I mean this this was a this was a respected movie. I think I think probably the fact that it was seen as a teenage aimed movie is probably a big reason it didn't get serious Oscar contention. Uh because if you go back and look too in, in 83, I mean the the Oscars that year are clearly I mean it's all about movies made for and about adults. Sure. Uh and you know I, I think it was probably just uh that that's probably just the tone of the academy at the time. Yeah, that was the year of uh Terms of Endearment, right? right? Yeah, and we'll we'll be getting to that later on in the series here. Right. Um, well, yeah. Then you mentioned Paul Brickman. I mean, well, this, this guy's kind of a fascinating character. I mean, he's kind of a J.D. Salinger type figure. <laughs> he definitely disappeared after Risky Business. I mean, he, um, you know, if you if you go and look at his filmography, he's he's got one other directorial effort, I think, in 1990, and and basically, other than that, the, probably the most notable work he did otherwise was just as a screenwriter, and that, that's what he had done up to this point. Uh, and, and in 1983, he actually had another fairly major release, just if you want to look at it as, you know, from, from the standpoint of the stars involved. It was, a, it was a movie called Deal of the Century with Chevy Chase and, uh, and Sigourney, we- Sigourney Weaver and Gregory Hines. So, I mean, it's, it's a fairly high-profile comedy. It didn't make any money, uh, di- didn't make enough to get into the top 50 anyway. Um, but, you know... It sounds like I mean it sounds like a vaguely interesting premise. It's like it's it's a it's a comedy about weapons dealers in South America. So it's I mean he definitely he was a guy that was trying to do some interesting things uh, as a writer, and uh, you know for whatever reason really never uh, carried on his career after this. I mean this was a this was a huge hit, and and he just did kind of disappear into the uh, into the landscape, I guess, after this. Yeah, and, you know the, the the movie Men Don't Leave. The only other movie he directed after this was was like what seven years later. Yeah, and that didn't really make any noise. I mean, really, and the guy's still alive. I think he's only what I think he was. He's only like sixty, going on seventy, something like that. 
Yeah, I mean he's and, he's around. He hasn't. He actually hasn't done anything. According to IMDb, hasn't done anything since the um, since the uh, Warsaw Uprising TV movie. It's called Uprising. Uh, but it, yeah, it was like I think it was like a, a David Schwimmer starring miniseries that was on TV uh, back in two thousand. Yeah, and he he had a, a co writing credit on. I saw Clint Eastwood's nineteen ninety nine movie True Crime. I mean, this this is really is a just going back and watching this movie. I mean, because I really this is one of my favorite films from the eighties. I mean, it really holds up to me every time. This time, I you know I got things out of it that I didn't in previous viewings, especially uh, that I didn't get out of it when I watched it when I when I was in high school because uh, I was watching it at you know kind of the same sensibilities that some of the characters have, but but uh, you know I think that this guy's a really interesting figure and I would compare him to to a Terrence Malick or a you know a Whit Stillman or somebody like that 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 you know only does movies. Obviously, this guy or even a I wouldn't you know. I'm not, I'm not, I would say Kubrick too, and I'm not saying based on the quality of the work necessarily, but just the, the rate at which they do work. Right, yeah. Um, you know, and I think that, that if this guy were to, to kind of reemerge or come out with another project, that, and it, you know, it could be marketed as, look, this guy made one movie that, that anybody knows about. It's a risky business. You love that movie. All your friends love this movie. Mm-hmm. And now this is the next piece of work from this guy. I think people would, would pay attention. You know, and I want to talk about another figure in this movie that, you know, uh, that really is, is to me, uh, you watch this movie and you think if if you were going to, if you were going to, I think if I put myself back in 1983 and watched this movie and said, who's going to be the bigger star between Tom Cruise and Rebecca DeMornay, I would have told you Rebecca DeMornay. I mean, she's, she's so charismatic and likable in this movie. And, and uh, Roger Ebert actually points out in, in his review at the time that, that she takes this really stock character, the hooker with the heart of gold, and she turns it into something that's actually interesting. And she has some background to her, and she's she's, you know, she's a character uh, that has some depth to her. And uh, I disagree. I mean, I honestly, she does a little more for me than just serve as a pretty face here. And it's actually, you, you know, really? you're you're not yes, impressed with her yeah, performance. No, here? not really. I mean, she what her backstory? What that her her stepfather came on to her. I mean, how original is that? <laughs> well, no, I think the way she operates is a little bit, uh, is a little bit interesting though. I mean, and, and you can credit Brickman with that too, but I think she's, uh, you know, I think when I watch her, uh, as compared to the female leads in some of these other sex comedies I've seen where I think it's so key that you have the female lead in these movies be somebody that you could see yourself as a, as a male viewer. Anyway, the experience has to be that, I could see myself chasing after that girl, and I think I think you do have to have some amount of of uh, likable personality going on. And and to me, she had some moments in this movie where um, where she really, you know, she really shines as a as a sort of charismatic female lead. Well, you you one thing I thought was interesting is that she not only plays a romantic interest for Joel, uh, you know, also sort of like a mother figure. A little bit, uh, yeah. In a way, because he he goes to her and literally cries on her shoulder once he realizes the kind of debt that he's in after the car has crashed. But but to me, it's like her, her character isn't that admirable in that, you know, she, she aligns herself with that idiot pimp <laughs> played by Joe Pantolano. And then, you know, she just takes up with a high school student like, that doesn't seem very wise or ambitious. And 
honestly, by the end of the movie, I kind of like the way that, that uh, uh, Joel is treating her at the end, just kind of playing with her, you know, yeah. now that, now that he's realized uh, his, his true potential as a future enterpriser or a little enterpriser that he, he knows that he's got the leverage and uh, you know, that she is, you know, just another, she can just be another employee for him. He's the smart one. Well, I think she, I, I don't know. I think she's still, uh, I think she's still proven to him that, that, you know, he, he she knows know. hot girls that she, <laughs> <laughs> what else does she bring to the table? Yeah, She's know? the business partner in the arrangement. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think having already seen Tom Cruise in a couple other movies and 83 was a huge year for Tom Cruise. It's really the year that he became a household name. He, he was, he was in the outsiders that year. He was in, uh, he had another movie called losing it, which didn't make the top 50, but it was, you know, it's become a little bit of a, of a cult classic. And then there's all the right moves, which I, which I also reviewed in the series, which that's really probably his most impressive performance of, of 83. You could put that up with what he did here. But you know he's he's definitely um, he's definitely taking advantage. You can you know this guy was working a lot in 1983. This was this you know Tom Cruise was was uh, a big name and this was a big opportunity for him. I think you know I guess if you look at all those movies, Risky Business is probably the one that made him famous from 1983. Sure, uh, you know, and and it's funny because uh, it, this movie. Did a lot for him, but also I, I was just looking at the poster of the movie, and yeah. uh, it looks like an ad for Ray Bans. Well, it did. It actually did a lot for Ray Bans. I mean, there's there's sort of anecdotes out there that uh, that the the Wayfarer sunglasses that they made were going. They were sort of out of style at this point, and there's a you know obviously for if you've seen it, you know there's a really notable sequence uh, and I'm going to try to link to it in the in the post that we do about the about risky business but uh there's a sequence where it's sort of when he's finally embracing the the business idea he has here of of opening up a, a brothel basically in his house where you know these these Ray-Bans suddenly become you know the sort of icon of of his you know confidence and his transformation and you know I think it really is. It is the most recognizable image of the movie is Tom Cruise in the Ray Bans, you know, kind of uh, talking these kids into uh, into going to the to the the prostitutes that he's hosting in his house. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of they they and it's 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 a cliche, you know that that you know you put sunglasses on and you're cool all it of works. a sudden, it but, works, but it works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really. I, I would say that is. That's kind of the image I take away from this movie. It's not it's not a straight comedy movie, although there there's some funny stuff in it and it's not really just a straight drama either obviously. It's a lot lighter than that. I mean, if you had to if you had to say kind of what the the tone of the movie is, I would say that it's really you know, it kind of goes for cool. You know, it's kind of establishing it kind of just embodies that word of when you think of the, of cool in the eighties, that that's, that's what this is. And I think that's, that, that sequence is kind of the perfect moment of the movie where you just, you know, you just, you just kind of watch it and, you know, he's got the, the sunglasses and the cigarettes and the, the way he carries himself in that scene. I mean, that, that is kind of the embodiment of what was cool in the eighties. Well, I wanted to ask you what you thought about us, uh, some of the supporting cast, namely, 
you know, Bronson Pinchot, who went on, went on to some success, especially mm-hmm. on TV after this, but also, uh, the guy, I'm not sure the actor's name that plays Booger in the Revenge yeah. of the Nerds. Yeah. Movies. Yeah. Curtis Armstrong. This is actually, right. this was his first movie, but you know, you could say oh. he's, he's really playing kind of the same character as Booger. Uh, it, Except this this one's been accepted into Harvard, right? Yeah, he's 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 uh, he's uh, he's been oddly uh, successful as a student, I guess, and and he's uh, you know he sort of talks a bigger game than 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 he really has, and yeah, I mean, I think I think Curtis Armstrong is really funny in this movie. I think he's he's a much needed comic sidekick, and uh, and I really like Bronson Pinchot too, although he's kind of a different. He's kind of a different form of of comedy here because he's yeah. he's definitely the the uptight nerdy guy, and uh, you know I I don't know I, I, it's probably I'm probably bringing to it that that I already know who Bronson Pinchot is and I like him, <laughs> but I think he really does a good job here. I, he's both of them are really enjoyable uh, in these little supporting yeah, but- roles. Yeah, but out of the three friends, I think Pinchot is kind of the the least makes the least impact um, because you know you got Booger who basically gets the plot and sets the plot in motion, encourages right. Joel to to kind of let go and say what the f, and you know kind of he kind of makes the movie, and then the other friend Glenn, I think is he stands out more than Bronson Pinchot, kind of this <laughs> sex crazed guy that. You know, he, uh, he's the one that brings the girl over to to right. uh, to Joel's house. Yeah, right. And you know, and that he was to me was was a really unusual but and funny character. Uh, you know, the, but that that had he was involved in one of the scenes that kind of irked me. Just some kind of really broad comedy when they say "grunt twice if you hear me." Oh, and they play that bad just soundtrack cut twice in a row. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know that that felt. Like uh, like it might have belonged in the Spring Break movie. Yes, yes, definitely. But uh, but you know, I, I think that uh, Curtis Armstrong has a really interesting scene. It's it's when it's kind of a an aside during the brothel sequence. Uh, he's standing outside with Joel lighting a pipe, and he just tells him, you know, I could get I could get sex for free. Right. And Joel's just like, uh huh. Yeah. And then that's it. It's a really, but it's not played for like a direct laugh or anything. No, it almost it's a really seemed like they, it almost seemed like they cut into that scene late. You know, like, yeah, it's, like, it's like we've already missed the the first part of the conversation there. Yeah, but it was an interesting scene. You're right. Uh, that just kind of comes out of nowhere, and Joel has to go back inside it. <laughs> you know, but on its own, just thinking about it, I think it kind of works. It's, and it makes you kind of try uh, interpret, you know, what you will from it. Well, I, to me, the to me, I read that as that that the Curtis Armstrong character was, you know, when it came down to it, he was intimidated by what was going on in the house, and he didn't, yeah. he didn't really want any part of it. Right. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Probably. I um, I want I want to talk about, you know, the the soundtrack a little bit here because that's obviously another iconic part of of this movie. I mean, most people definitely the the enduring trope i guess from this movie is the you know the the scene where with the bob seger song and tom cruise running around in the in the shirt and underwear that's i mean that's been parodied an endless amount of times at this point and that's probably more people know that image than than even know that it comes from this movie but uh 
I mean, there are a few other moments, I think, where the soundtrack and, and people really didn't have a good sense for this, is my feeling, having watched these 1983 movies. Uh, I don't think directors in general had a great feel for using, uh, you know, using the, a soundtrack in this in this way just yet. I think that seemed to be more of a 90s phenomenon than an 80s phenomenon, but there are a couple of good moments here. I, I really like the moment where, and this is probably Bronson Pinchot's best moment in the movie, where uh, the Muddy Waters song, I'm a Man, comes on, and, and uh, the, the, the prostitutes are kind of parading into the house past Bronson Pinchot. Right. I thought that was pretty effective, even, you know, and, and there, there's one weird choice, though, I want to ask your opinion about, which is uh, the beginning, it's almost like the first half of the train sequence, and, uh, you know, do you, do you remember what song is being played as they kind of are getting on the, this? The, it's kind of the anticipation build-up portion of the train scene. No, I just, I just remember that. I, I thought it would have been Tangerine Dream, and I just watched it. Well, that's the actual soundtrack to, to the, uh, the payoff on the train, I guess. But, no, there's the, the, the first half of it. They're playing Phil Collins. In the oh, oh yeah, in the air tonight. Right, right, right. And it came off so weird to me. It was it was a very <laughs> awkward soundtrack moment for me. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I thought that I thought that it kind of like it's like it, it just at a kind of a primal level. It's like you know that she wants to have sex on the train, and it kind of added to building the anticipation of what was probably about to be like a hot encounter. Yeah, I don't know. It seemed it seemed a little too threatening, almost. You know, it's, it's you expect that for like for like a movie where he's about to go in and do a drug bust. You know, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, another note on the soundtrack is that it includes uh, during the brothel sequence the uh, Talking Heads song "Swamp," which actually includes a line from the singer David Byrne that says "Risky business." Oh, right. You know, I remember catching that catching that line and thinking that that must be where the title of the movie comes from. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I, I, and before we, before we kind of close up here, I, I want to talk about this. This is something I always sort of look at uh, as I'm going through and researching these movies to write, uh, write my, my uh, blog posts on them. Mm-hmm. I, I was like looking at kind of the, the, the casting, choices and you know that 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 almost were and and didn't quite happen and i you know it's hard to know how reliable some of this stuff is you usually see it on imdb and wikipedia these notes about you know the actors who auditioned for the role and you know it's hard to know how close any of them really were to to taking that part but um according to imdb anyway tom hanks and nicholas cage were both in the running for the joel part uh which i think is pretty interesting i i definitely haven't seen any of Tom Hanks in 1983 yet, uh, as far as the movies I've seen. But uh, Nicolas Cage had kind of a, a – I, I was very impressed with him uh, early on in the series here with, with Valley Girl, which was his first was his first on-screen role. But and I, I think he could have done a pretty decent job here. Um, I don't know. What, 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 do you, what do you think about those choices, Graham? Uh, you know, that's. I think I think that Tom Cruise is great in this role, and I mean, you know, like we were talking about earlier, potential uh, it being a potential Oscar contender, which it was. And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think it got any nominations that year. Um, no, it did not. Yeah. Right. Well, I you know, if I were to nominate it for anything, I would have said picture, 
uh, a picture, screenplay, director, and actor. Because I think Tom Cruise, you know, it's his movie. Yeah. And you're with him the entire time. You feel his sort of anxiety. You feel his excitement. And like you said, when you, you, uh, he makes the transition when he finally does just throw his hands up and say, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace this and, and enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's totally, totally believable. And it's, I think it's a seamless performance and I'm, I'm glad he took it. But of course, you know, they are, I would probably go with Hanks. I think Hanks is, you know, you need kind of an everyman kind of a feel for this, for this role. Uh, so I would have probably gone with Hanks, but hey, you know, <laughs> Nicholas Cage in that era, <laughs> it would have been great. I mean, probably, uh, probably would have fallen more into like a better off dead category. <laughs> Than, than, you know, kind of what we have here, which is a more graduate-esque yeah. kind of a film. But uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad Tom Cruise got it. And I, I think it's one of his great performances that whenever, you know, we write Tom Cruise's cinematic obituary, this is going to be at the beginning. It's going to be this is going to be the one that people say he, uh, he broke out with. And I should say, you, you asked about award nominations. He did get a, a Golden Globe nomination for uh, for best performance in a comedy musical. There you go. Uh, and and actually, the movie also was uh, it, it. Paul Brickman got a uh, WGA nomination for best screenplay. So mm. it, it was it was you know it got some recognition. It definitely yeah. didn't get any at the Oscars. But uh, well, this is one that I'm sure that uh, you know since it was successful, obviously in the top ten of that year, that's a big deal. Uh, any year, you know, especially back then. Sure, that I means, mean if that, that means a lot of people saw this movie. I bet people when the Oscar nominations came out were like. Hey, you know, where's risky business? Yeah, and I mean, if you, I've, I've tried to sort of, I don't know how I feel about the sort of inflation that we try to do because I don't think if you, I don't think just inflating, you know, calculating for dollar inflation is kind of an accurate portrayal of, uh, I, I guess, a, a, a similar type of performance at the box office today because there's so many other factors involved. But you know, when you look at sixty three and a half million for risky business, I mean. Really, if you go and look at at the top ten at the box office, you know, the, of the last few years, you're talking about the the number ten movie on that list is almost always very close to two hundred million. So yeah. I mean, it, it, it's for for it to have been one of the top ten movies that was seen that year, it's it's definitely, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's it's one of those movies that that probably almost everybody saw, and, and yeah, and it's rated R, yeah. So not sure, everybody. Yeah. We're talking about we're talking about you know seventeen and up, and then this is a year of what Dis- a lot of, like Disney reissues and Return of the Jedi. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of options, and uh, for this to compete in that marketplace, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, I I'm, I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at its actual sort of weekend that it opened. Uh, back in August fifth of of nineteen eighty three, it, it was it was up against. I'm trying to see here. It, it was it was actually, you know, as far as new releases, it didn't have a lot to go on. But uh, you know, it was it was kind of it was actually third its opening weekend behind Return of the Jedi, which was still going strong at that point, and and uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, which finished just behind it overall mm. in the um, in the box office standing. So. You know, it was it, it, it. You can see you can see a movie like this uh, doing that kind of business late in the summer. It's, it's kind of your typical late summer surprising yeah. box office success. It's a movie that you know, uh, kind of older older teenagers and and maybe people in their twenty somethings will go and see right. as the summer's winding down. They want to see something a little bit more 
mature, a little bit less about big action and, and broad appeal, right. you know? Well, uh, you know, let me ask you one more thing that I continue to, to see and, and think when I see this movie. If someone were to tell you that this movie was uh, not directed by Paul Brickman, that it was directed by John Hughes, would you believe them? Yeah, I think I think I can see that a little bit. I mean, I, I certainly think it's there. I, I think it's I think it's falling into the same type of category, and and for whatever reason, uh, among the these movies in the early and mid '80s that were about somewhat overprivileged white teenagers, for whatever reason, they also all seemed to te- to gravitate and, and be set in the Midwest, and really specifically Chicago, which is where this movie's set too. So it, it's odd that, that you, you know, you talk about John Hughes, which is kind of notorious for his movies being Chicago-based. Here, this is another movie about overprivileged white kids trying to get into Ivy League schools and dealing with, kind of absurd problem. Well, this came before his movies about those topics. Right. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's uh it's definitely tapping into I think the same uh you know, the same ideas. It it, it succeeds probably for the same reasons that the John Hughes movies succeed. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, if how much if any influence uh, this film had on John Hughes's later movies like, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, it's uh, a good it's a good point. I mean, it it certainly could have been influential and if you look at if you look at a lot of the movies that seem to jump out um especially earlier in the in the countdown here. I mean, the, these top 10 movies are all largely fairly original movie ideas. Uh, and that's probably part of why they succeeded so much. If you go back a little further in the countdown, you can usually look at those movies and say, well, this movie is kind of clearly a reaction uh, by a studio to something that worked before. And, uh, you know, I think I think when you look at some of the sex comedies we saw earlier in the countdown, they're clearly a reaction to Porky's, uh, <laughs> which had just done so much so, uh, just a ridiculous amount of money at the box office, and it cost them nothing to make. That they said, "Well, let's just make a bunch of these cheap, you know, no star sex comedies." I don't think that's what Brickman was making here. I think he was trying to do something different. And I think you're right. I mean, the, the fact that this made as much money as it did, and it and it isn't that expensive of a movie. Um, you know, it, there there's a uh, it, the the production budget is uh, six point two million. So. It's a moderate production budget for the time, but nobody in this was really a huge star, and and there's there there aren't really a lot of big set pieces or anything. So I I could see I could see that definitely of 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 John Hughes coming along after this movie in Hollywood saying, "Hey, you know what we'd really like to see is a, a movie that speaks to you know white middle class Midwestern teenagers because they're 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 the people out there buying movie tickets right now, you know." And this sort of speaks to – I don't, I don't think it's – it's obviously very exaggerated and it's, it's over-the-top you know, premises and ideas. But I think, I think probably teenagers tapped into something here and they, and they, you know, they felt something from this movie because they, they were you – know, there's some, there some very deep-running ideas in this movie that they were probably dealing with. You know, the, the anxiety about getting into college and succeeding and – and then at the same time, you know, uh, 
trying trying to deal with, uh, you know, uh, is sex something that's supposed to be just fun and this kind of conquest that you're supposed to, you know, just kind of something to do that that that's a universal experience, or is it something that is part of a mature relationship? You know, I think I think you're you're right on it, Graham. I think this is this is definitely something that that could have been a heavy influence on those John Hughes movies. Well, of course, this movie has one, a classic scene, the, the dance scene that you mentioned. Uh, would you call this movie a classic? Uh, you know, having never seen it until we watched it for this podcast, um, I definitely say I could say it's culturally relevant still today. Um, and I would I would say I would call it a classic because uh, of that of that sense that I get when I'm watching it that it's that it's not trying to be um, something else. It's not trying to fulfill what it feels like is, is something that the audience wants or the audience is looking for. Uh, I think it's trying to do its own thing. It's trying to create its own version of, of cool and its own version of fun. Uh, and it doesn't fit a really pre-designed, you know, sort of cookie cutter genre. Um, you know, so I, I think that's for those reasons, I would say it probably is a classic. It did something, it, it definitely, it definitely has its own feel to it. It's not a movie you'd get confused with another movie. I don't think. Yeah. I, you know, I, after seeing it again, I, there are things about it that, 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 you know, I don't think it's a perfect film. There are things, some, sure. it's some things that happen in the movies, some transitions that might be a little abrupt between key scenes, but but I, I think it's a classic. I think it is uh, a classic from that era that just gets better every time you watch it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know I'm, when I'm when I'm all done with this, I'm I'm thinking I'm I'm probably going to make my, you know, my my top five 1983 movies, and I would say this one's heavily in contention right now for making that uh, making that list based on what I've seen so far. Um, it's just a it's just a very indicative movie of. Uh, of this year, you know, and having, having sort of immersed myself in 1983 for so long now, if I was going to show somebody a movie to, to give them an idea of what popular culture was like in America in 1983, this would, this would definitely be one of them. Yeah. I saw it at the theater on its first weekend. And, uh, (laughs) I remember that was kind of, we went, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us went and got coffee afterwards. And, uh, that's kind of what I was one. Right. Um, but you know, we kind of got together and talked about it and yeah, we, I, I think we all kind of predicted that we would be having this conversation uh, 30, like on 30 a, years later on a website. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, again, I, 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 I think it holds up and I think that I'll be watching this movie in another 30 years and showing it to my kids. You'll be showing it to your kids. Sure. Absolutely. Once they're, you know, 14, 15, I would say, Hey, Here's a great example of a movie from this time period. Uh, you know, it's, I, I'd sh- I'd let my 14 year old watch this. Yeah, that's about the age I was when I saw it for the first time. 14. I'm, I might hold off. I might hold off on on a young teenager, but that you know, yeah, just repress them, Matt. That's really gonna that's really gonna <laughs> pay pay off dividends for you. <laughs> uh, all right. Well. Graham will be joining us for a uh, part two of our Black Swan Cinematrimony podcast coming up next week. and uh, Yeah, because the Blu-ray is out. That's that's right, yeah. I really think you and Francesca should do a, a second-by-second <laughs> breakdown of uh, 
you know, the, the, the Mila Kunis scene. Sure. Yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> I'll, I'll go see what Francesca thinks about it. Yeah. Ask her. All right. Well, Graham, uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me for this and we'll, um, uh, you know, we, we'll probably do we'll probably do another wrap up podcast at the end of all this, and uh, we'd love we, to have. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to ask you: is is spring break going to be in your top five? Spring break right now is is uh, not. You know, I would say yeah, it's just outside the the list. You know, spring spring break. I, I will give it this. I've I've said this about it, about it before. There's a it's a terrible movie. It's almost unwatchable the whole way through. And there's one scene that. Suddenly, it becomes like a really well shot. Uh, the the Coke, say the cool Coke, movie. yeah, and then you realize it's a Coke commercial, yeah, in the middle of the movie. <laughs> and uh, I'm still convinced that they brought in a different director for that scene. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Graham. Thank you. All right.